You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Hello, everyone. I'm so happy to be here with you today as part of this congregation of sinners and saints, in some ways no different than any other church on this Sunday morning, and in some ways quite particular maybe even peculiar. And no matter how similar or dissimilar to anywhere else in the world today, I'm so thankful that this is the place that I have found and the place that has found me back as we all try and make sense of the past, work toward the future, and remain present in the present together. As Jamie just alluded to, some of you might know that I teach social work by day, but another part of my purpose on this planet is to put things into words. That's why they ask me to do this every now and then, because I am a writer. And I have been to so many writing trainings and seminars and retreats over the course of my life. And in fact, being in those spaces is arguably the happiest, most contented version of myself. I love to talk about rhythm and repetition and resonance to tease apart what makes a sentence ascend off the page and alternatively what might cause it to lie there limp and languishing, leaving the reader unstirred, unsatisfied, and worse, unbothered. A concept that comes up quite a bit in these writing workshops is uh, the weight and centrality of a first sentence or section or scene in a given work. Good beginnings, it's touted, contain within them a sense of the entire story right from the start. The idea, the tone, the point of all that is to come. One could get precious with this idea, of course. I think there are many ways to tell a good story, and not all of them have to comport to this rule, but I have become accustomed to and delighted by taking a storyteller at their word right from the very start. So I'm gonna give you a few examples. Midnight Library was a book that was flying through my friend group a couple of years back. It's by the author, and I apologize, I forgot to look up if it's Matt Haig or Haig, but he begins, 27 hours before she decided to die, Nora Seeds sat on her dilapidated sofa, scrolling through other people's happy lives, waiting for something to happen. And then, out of nowhere, something actually did. It's a book about mortality, about comparison, and about understanding the ordinary as important. And I believe we see all of that in this brief initial encounter with our protagonist. I know we have a lot of Harry Potter fans at UBC, and this one might be trickier to tune into at first blush. I always find it Interesting that the writer of the series chooses to begin each novel off stage from the primary settings and characters that she ultimately asks us to follow. The first paragraph of book one reads, Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. They were the last people you would expect to be involved with anything strange or mysterious because they just didn't hold with such nonsense. This is a book, a series one could argue about identity, about who is in, who is out, 
and what we choose to believe about ourselves and others and the mystery that surrounds and inhabits us. And maybe I'm just hopeful seeing what I want to see, but I think those themes can be found right in these fresh first words that began a love affair for so many of us. One more. You might be familiar with this one, too. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This, it would seem then, is a text about the shadows, the abyss, the oblivion of existence, nurtured, nested, and infused with a lingering diurnal presence. First impressions matter, literarily speaking. And something similar can be said of today's text. The miracle at the wedding in Cana is understood to be the first of the miracles performed by Jesus. Certainly the first recorded, at least in the Gospel of John. It is this miracle, then, that situates us for the rest of what Jesus has to say. The story begins on the third day, and already there is a rhetorical device popping up, as it was understood that this reference to the third day is a wink to the readers, another way of saying on Resurrection Day, or in the new era, this is what it's going to be like. So let's read that whole piece together again and see what this situating scene has to say to us about the life to come. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jewish people for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the person in charge of the banquet. They did so, and the person in charge of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what might this mean to make manifest for us? I have, as is my job today, a few ideas. I think one thing this miracle might be setting up for those who have ears to hear is that God, God's presence, God's activity and inactivity in the world is a mystery. We see in the scene that Mary believes God should work in a certain way and also at a certain pace, given the need and stakes in the social context, which would have been great shame on this family. Me, I, and this won't surprise those closest to me, relate to the mother of God. I relate so hard. It has only been in the last 10 years or so that I have had any real awareness that the way I have thought about things, felt about things, experienced things, was not the only set of meaningful thoughts, feelings, and experiences in the world. I don't know if anyone can relate. 
Even now, I frequently feel that I have the right answer about every insignificant thing from which drink someone should order at a restaurant to which books someone should read and when. And it causes me distress if I think someone is taking too long or talking too much or not enough. I start to feel like I must be the only one noticing. Somehow everyone else has numbed out or fallen asleep or washed their hands of whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. And we're just talking coffee shops and book clubs here. So you can imagine how I might feel about waiting on God's timing in this rough and unruly world. And I should say God's perfect, if inscrutable, timing is a notion that I have to confess has been contorted and perverted and oversimplified in ways that are altogether unholy. Yet two truths can coexist, can't they? It is true that telling someone with a broken heart, someone who is depressed, diseased, disordered, dying, that God is always right on time can be flippant, callous, unhelpful and unpresent, unpresent as a way of being in the world. And let me say I'm sorry for anyone who has been made to feel that the main theme of the story of God is either quiet resignation or toxic positivity, because I do not believe that it is. But it can concurrently be true that perhaps our sense of urgency is at times disconnected from a slower, more intentional rhythm of reconstruction, restoration, and resurrection. Sometimes quick intervention comes at the expense of good intervention. Sometimes we don't even realize exactly when or how transformation has occurred in our lives, like the water, which the scripture suggests becomes new somewhere on the journey between here and there. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the person in charge tasted the water that had been turned into wine. The writer confirms the miracle by way of an aside. And I kind of love that, because I have enough years behind me now to know what it is like to look up one day and realize that... Well, in the words of one of my favorite writers, I have found a garden shed where I once kept my armory. We do not know when the water turned or how exactly it metamorphosized. We just know that somehow, at some point, mystically, it did. And you know, I think this story shows us not only that God is mysterious, as in amorphous, hard to pin down, wilder, weirder than we had imagined. But in fact, when we do get a glimpse of the truth of God, it seems so often to be the opposite of what we have been taught or what has been modeled in our families, congregations, classrooms, and communities. The person in charge said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. Most of us have been given so many rights and wrongs, so much etiquette, so much supposedly spiritual common sense. 
And sometimes all that teaching gets in the way of inclusive, expansive life lived to the fullest. Some of us, for instance, have been taught that we are like these vessels in the story, holy and pure, set apart from other instruments, meant to be used only for prescribed ritual and righteousness. We were told to tame and scrub and reserve our bodies for a higher, holier-than-thou purpose. And then on the third day, we start to suspect that it is actually not something devilish, but rather something divine in us that is saying, you know what, let's get a little wine in here. Let's get full to the brim. Let's hold space for an entirely new and different thing. Let's not be, as my mother would say, too spiritual for any earthly good. Another example of this upside down nature of God in the world is who gets to be in on the secret in this story. The person in charge was not in the know. The partiers were none the wiser. The couple, who incidentally seem to be the least interesting characters to the writer, are ignorant to the miracle taking place as far as we know. But the ones who had the most intimate audience, the most embodied participation, were the workers. And I think it should go without saying at this point that the community of God that we see depicted throughout scripture is one with atypical inverted power dynamics. And I think UBC seems to have a relatively healthy perspective on this. So while I do believe that there is an acuity to God's presence and God's distance for that matter, for those who are afforded the least power on earth, what I actually wanna focus on in this comparison is the nearness, or maybe I should say the accessibility of God to those who are doing the intense, intimate, interior work of releasing our own brains, bodies, and behaviors from the burden of being the same thing we have always been, of doing what is expected, of settling for fighting, fleeing, freezing, or fawning. We can be orderly and servant-hearted and productive and intense and competent and prepared and excited and determined and peace-loving people. But if we do not learn to get better at disorder, undoing, resting, calming, unknowing, trusting, relinquishing, and resisting, then we will continue to curate a contained and, dare I say, counterfeit version of Christianity because we will have chosen to stay at the surface of our interactions, emotions, and involvement in the world. Too afraid, ashamed, or angry to let ourselves plumb the depths. We must remember, though, that the depths, the darkness of our turbulent situations and souls are not unaccompanied. We must remember that the Spirit of God hovers over the deep, waiting to create, and all creation is delivered to us out of a void, out of the unknown. We must remember that on the third day in the story today, the vessel which once held water for purification now holds wine for celebration. And the final thing I think this first miracle might point us to is that the way forward for Jesus is communal. You know, it, is only, it, it isn't only the first words that matter in creating the tone for a good story. It is, of course, the setting as well. 
Nora Reed, our character from Midnight Library, sits in her home, alone, on her dilapidated sofa, because this is a story about not feeling a part of the bigger world and not being good enough. Number four, Privet Drive, was selected as the place for Harry Potter's mean and mundane muggle relatives because the author understood the number four to be a hard and unforgiving one and because the privet is a most suburban plant, a hedge that specializes in sameness and in separation of one people from another. In the first words of the Bible, the scene is the heavens and the earth and the darkness and the waters because the point of the book is going to be that God is everywhere. And for the first of Jesus' miracles, the setting is a wedding, the most clear, uninterrogable example of community and, and communality. Two people are coming together to be both more and less of themselves in the company and with the help of God and one another. Family and friends are joining with them to bring beauty and bodies, sustenance and support, laughter and quiet. And even the less intimately connected, the cousin's boyfriend who got dragged there, the recent colleague, the sign language interpreter, are asked to bear witness to the event, to hold on to this memory, to take some responsibility for how everything will turn out along the way. And after the sitting, the watching, the prayer which is implicit in presence, even that once distant observer is invited to join in the drinking and the dancing and the delight that comes with showing up and staying until the very end. One of my favorite professors in undergrad was a man named Art Allen. My friends and I loved Dr. Allen because he was the teensiest bit mischievous, but more importantly, because he believed himself to be massively mischievous. He could not contain how pleased he was to be rocking our little sophomoric religious minds. He talked a lot about weddings to us. And not just in the class I actually really took called Principles of Christian Marriage, but also in Minor Prophets and New Testament Survey and Intro to the Apocrypha. What he reminded us of time and time again was that something always goes wrong at a wedding. The flower girl dumps all the flowers at once. The ring holder has forgotten the ring. Ross says Rachel instead of Emily. That was a hot new reference at the time. Nothing goes how we think it will, how we think it should, how we have pre prepared for, he always told us. So I suppose this brings us back to the beginning of my suppositions about this miracle and what its primacy suggests we would do well to remember. For me, the wedding at Cana tells the story of God as mystery, God's ways as upside down, God's essence and God's people as communal. A thing that has fascinated me in all my writing communities is the way that given the same prompt, a room of 15 people will take the story to such brilliantly different places. We all bring our perspectives, our strengths, ourselves to the page. If you were up here today, you might have seen something in this miracle that I can't quite see yet, or that I've seen too many times to notice anymore. We need each other to interpret the story and the spirit of God. 
I wish I could hear each of your final lines reminding us where we have been, or in some cases, where we are going next. Because in the midst of a beautifully mysterious and upside down God, the miracle is that we do have each other to figure things out. UBC miracles occur in a community because someone has a great need. Someone else notices. The workers stop and listen and pour and lift and carry what needs to be poured and lifted and carried out for something magical to take place. I've been a part of UBC for six years now and it has always been the best place for me for my curious, creative, sorrowful, jubilant soul. I've been having fun, I've been sentimental, I've been working the room this whole time. But as I look around and take in who you are, who are still here with me and with one another, I can say I suspect the finest wine is still on its way. Now we like to take a moment of silence to let the spirit speak to us to correct anything I might have said wrong and to do anything else the spirit is interested in doing. <laughs> 